Sorry, sorry, sorry. That, that one came from my personal collection. Hold on. Welcome to the Kook Center Podcast, and here's your host. Oh, it's easy. You just pour kerosene over a ferret, light it on both ends, put it in. They're attracted to gas lines. What? Yeah. A ferret? Yeah. Or you take the raccoon. That's a lot of trouble. Michael Preston. Welcome into the Coog Center Podcast, second full week of the shortest month of the year, February. I am, as usual, Michael the Golden Throat Preston. Hope you are all doing well out there in Coog Center land. Certainly plenty to get to this week. We're going to be uh, going over more signing day stuff with a Pacific Takes own Avanish Kunath, the editor-in-chief, you could say, Pacific Takes. Great interview with him coming up in just a few minutes. We've also got our Dunderhead of the Week, of course, and our brand new segment, Ask Michael Anything you can ask me, anything you want, I will answer your questions uh, at the end of the podcast. But first, um, it is the middle of February, so we're going to be stuck on basketball again. I do uh, before we get to men's basketball and Ken Bone and, and uh, referencing a great piece uh, Jeff Newser had on the website uh, earlier this week about his contract and uh, all that has to do with that. I do want to give some dap where dap is due uh, to the WSU women's team. They won four straight until a loss uh, to number 17 UCLA uh, last weekend. No shame in losing to UCLA either. That's a very good basketball team. Uh, currently 5-7 and seven in conference play on the year. Why is that terribly interesting? Well, it's terribly interesting because your next four games, before you wrap up the season against Cal and Stanford, probably two games even though they're at home, you're definitely not going to win. Those are two very good basketball teams. Your next four games are very, very winnable. And even though all four games are on the road, you win those four, and going into the last weekend of the season, you will have a chance to finish at 500 in the conference this year. It's going to be, that would be June Doherty's best performance as the head coach at WSU. So for kind of the guff I gave her uh, a couple of weeks ago, boy, has that team really turned it around. They're going to go to the Oregon schools this week. So Oregon and Oregon State, and that Oregon game was one they should not have lost at home. They did. Uh, Oregon State, they did beat in overtime, so they'll have another chance to beat the Beavers in Corvallis, and then they'll head to Colorado and Utah. Colorado and Utah still teams trying to improve a bit here in the Pac-12 Conference, so I think these are four very winnable games for the women. You get to that 500 mark, and uh, you know with another good run in the Pac-12 tournament, you know, maybe I revised my statement from a few weeks ago. I, you know, June Doherty still. I guess it would take another full season of uh, good coaching uh, at the at a good level in the Pac-12 for me to be completely convinced that she's the right coach for this job. But a nice four-game winning streak in the middle of the Pac-12 season, then plus more winning here to close out the conference season would certainly help as well. But the women right now, uh, winners of four of their last five as they head down to Oregon. Uh, in the coming weekend. Uh, I, I do want to get to that uh, piece uh, Mr. Nooser had on the website uh, on Tuesday, and I, I think it's especially important. I, like many people, have been hearing and am coming around to the, gosh, Ken Bone is just not the guy. And I know there are people that disagree with me, and that's fine. Uh, we're obviously not all going to agree on this issue, but I think it's it's probably safe to say that a majority of WSU fans 
have kind of come gone on to that side of the fence where they are not happy at all with Ken Bone at WSU. And Jeff had a great piece because regardless of your level of happiness with Ken Bone's job performance, a lot of whether he will be retained as the head coach at WSU has to do with his contract. We got a hold of his contract and as we said, it, you know, it's not something that's difficult to get a hold of. He's a public he's publicly employed by a state university, so his contract is public record. He is guaranteed the final three years of his contract. So if you want to fire him after this season, you're looking at just north, so a little more than a $2.5 million penalty. I don't mean a penalty in terms of, you know, that's, you know, an NCAA penalty. That's just because his contract's fully guaranteed. So you're going to pay a guy two and a half million bucks to sit at home or to coach elsewhere. And there are a few problems with that. You know, A... You don't want to do that, especially in a sport like basketball where, you know, you you bring in money, obviously, but really the program at its healthiest was their final NCAA run back in 07-08. And, and, and even then, football still bringing in more money. Football is still the number one sport at pretty much every... FBS school, save for a few, but I, you know, like Duke, Kentucky, I'm still not even sure about the figures there. So that's your big concern. Do you do you really want to pay out 2.5 million bucks to a guy for a sport that financially, right now, isn't nearly as important to you? Additionally, when you fire Ken Bone, if you were to do that after this year and you're Bill Moose, you're going to owe a guy a lot of money again to hire. Okay, you're going to owe... The next WSU coach, regardless whether it's Ken Bone and he gets a contract extension at the end of this contract or a new guy after next season, you're going to owe him seven figures. There's, it's got to be a seven-figure number. There's no getting around that. So you're gonna let's let's just say, just for being you know conservative, there you owe him a million dollars. You're gonna owe three point five million dollars, you know, or a big pardon, two point five million dollars, and then a million dollars on top of that. So you're gonna basically be paying the guy $1.8 million every year, but 800000 of it goes to Kembo, if that makes any sense. And then finally, and, and I thought Jeff brought up a great point, Bill Moose has already gone to bat so much for this athletic department just in the past couple of years. You get the CFP done at Martin Stadium, you get the football operations building done, uh, and or approved anyway, and you're looking at total costs for those of just shy of $150 bucks. All of that is bonded. So WSU is making yearly payments to pay those things off. And probably somewhere in the neighborhood, I know the FOBs yearly debt is $3.1 million. I'm not exactly sure on the CFP, but I would imagine because it costs more, it is north of $3.1 million. So you're probably looking at around 8 to $9 million a year in debt payments for those buildings. The Pac-12 TV contract, even though you know 20 years in the future, we don't know what it could look like, but for right now... It does not cover, you know, it, it helps cover that, but this this money doesn't just grow on trees. I mean, when we first saw this contract come down, you know, f- comparatively for the budget WSU was working with, yes, it was money growing on trees, but that's just not the case. You've got so much money tied up in those buildings, and additionally, as we pointed out when we wrote about the FOB in the first place, and as Jeff pointed out on Tuesday, you really had to go out on a limb with the Board of Regents here because they were basically digging all the way down into their bonding ability. They don't have much bonding ability left to pay for new academic buildings, to pay for these new things, and especially when the school is going to be expanding in the next 10 to 15 years. 
They're going to be making campus bigger. You need that bonding ability. So can Bill Moose really go to these regions and say, oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to pay this guy $2.5 million to sit at home and pick his nose? No matter how much I, I'm not happy with Ken Bone right now, can can Bill Moose really justify not just the $2.5 million for Ken Bone to be at home, okay, fine, 850000 bucks a year, but then on top of that, the extra money you're going to have to pay a men's basketball coach. And it's it's got to be a million bucks or more. There's no getting around that. He can't justify that to the Board of Regents, and they are really not going to be happy considering the athletic department is still in the red. They are still not making money. But it is because of all these capital improvements we're taking care of that need to happen. I That's perfectly acknowledgeable. Those things need to happen. But can Bill Moose justify firing him? No matter how unsuccessful the team is, I, he can't. It just does not make financial sense. And I know that's not something people want to hear, but sometimes it just stinks. That's the situation you're in. Does he deserve one more year? Debatable for those who are much smarter about basketball than I am. But right now, if you want to fire him at the end of this year, financially, it makes absolutely zero sense if you're Bill Moose and, more importantly, Washington State University. Avanish Kunath coming up right after this. We're going to talk some Pac-12 recruiting. Great segment. Don't go in. Welcome back to the Kook Center Podcast. Uh, you know, I don't know how many people know this, but uh, we have a really great SB Nation blog that covers the entire Pac-12. Very unique from that standpoint. And a guy who does a great job running it. It's PacificTakes.com. Pacific Takes, the name of it, obviously. Avanish Kunath, uh joining us here to wrap up kind of Pac-12 recruiting. Avanish, how are you doing, man? All right. How are you? Uh, just, just, all right, just all right. Biggest day of the year last week, and you're finally able to take a breather. That's got to be good, right? Oh man! Yeah. Oh brother! This is like it's time to it's time to relax. Okay, take well, a week off and get ready for the next season. Well, I'm I'm glad I'm glad you're able to finally take some time to to kind of settle back a little bit. Now, uh, you, you know, uh, the Pacific takes covers obviously the entire Pacific 12 conference and. Since we at Kook Center, you know, we, we didn't talk too much on uh, uh, a week ago Wednesday uh, about what the other teams in the conference were doing in terms of their recruiting. I, I want to just go over a little bit of that with you. Who kind of had uh, in your mind, I mean, I know recruiting services can give us numbers about who had the best class, but to your mind, uh, who in the Pac-12 uh, really wrangled in the best class last Wednesday? Um, by the numbers and by the uh, ratings, it has to be UCLA, and I would say... By the players that they got, it was definitely the Bruins. They covered all bases. They got pretty much every position they filled up with players in need. They got good talent from Los Angeles and across across California and around the nation. So they got pretty much every every position in need that they had, they filled in with players that they needed. And they probably got a few extra, too, so they have depth as well. So in terms of overall recruiting classes, I would have to go with the Bruins. Okay, now, I mean, and that's Jim Mora Jr. in just his second year at UCLA. So, I mean, 
you know, kind of describe for is for me, is it amazing what he's doing at UCLA, or is this kind of something we probably should have expected out of him uh, when he got to Westwood? Well, I think the key thing with Moore is that he assembled a really good recruiting staff. So he has uh, Demetrius Martin, who really recruits Los Angeles really well. He got him from Washington, and he has been he's been killing on the trail. He got a lot of the of the uh, secondary players like the Han Goodman and Priest Willis and Tyler Foreman and Johnny Johnson all to the commit. Mm-hmm. Um, you played a key role with all the defensive guys who uh, came to UCLA. You have Adrian Clem who came from Southern Methodist and he has huge connections inside the national recruiting circuit. So he helps rein in guys that you know might not have interested in the Bruins in the first place. You have Angus McClure who really recruits Northern California well and does a lot of good job in uh, finding other guys around the system. And I guess he just does a really good job in finding players, mm-hmm. finding coaches who recruit and do it well and sell Los Angeles. Now, of course, it's easy to recruit UCLA. Sure, it's yeah. It's easy to recruit UCLA now because mm-hmm. USC has such limited scholarships that a lot of the guys who don't want to go to USC can't get in. So UCLA becomes the next best thing. So I think it's, um, it's partly um, circumstances, but it's also partly just or finding good coaches that will recruit well for him and for okay. the Bruins. Is, is, is there any team in the Pac-12 uh, last week that kind of had, I guess, historically a, a disappointing day? We usually expect to see a little bit more from them in terms of what they're able to bring in on National Signing Day. Do you think there was anybody, it could it might not even be historically, maybe just based on the past few years, their recruiting performance, did anybody have kind of a disappointing day uh, last Wednesday? I mean, uh, you have to look at USC. They had they they had 15 scholarships. I only think they signed 12 or 13 players. They had six or seven decommits. They had, they had three, I think at least three players decommitted the day of signing day, the day before signing day. And they really scrambled. They had to fill up, get, they had to fill up the class over and over again. They, they did five and five star talent, and they have plenty of guys who will contribute, but. Um, the Trojans are going to be a very thin team coming up, and they really needed to fill up all those scholarships, and they didn't do that. So it's not really a huge disappointment because they have so much talent coming in, but mm-hmm. they really need they really needed to optimize with this uh, recruiting class, and it doesn't seem like they did that. All right, talking to Avanish Kunath of Pacific Takes, the Pac-12 blog from SB Nation that covers, as you now know, the entire Pac-12 conference. Uh, we had three new coaches in the Pac-12 this year. Uh, one at Colorado, Mike McIntyre. One at Oregon, Mark Helfrick. And one uh, at uh, your your uh, school of rooting pleasure, California, Sonny Dykes. Of, of those three guys, who kind of had the most difficult task Coming in after you know after being hired, obviously Jeff Tedford and John Embry fired. Chip Kelly left for uh, the Philadelphia Eagles. Who of those three guys, to your mind, kind of had the most difficult job, uh, kind of getting into the saddle uh, when it came to recruiting? No, definitely Colorado. Um, Mike McIntyre had a very difficult job coming in. I mean, the Bucks coaching staff was pretty loyal to John Embry. They didn't want him fired to begin with, so. It was tough. It was tough to sell to the recruits, and I think there was some decommitment. And McIntyre had to come in and find a bunch of guys, mostly they recruit from San Jose to fill in the ranks. So the Colorado ended up with an okay recruiting class. Uh, it's not that great. Mm-hmm. I mean, they'll have they'll have a they'll have an uphill curve to climb. They'll have to really develop the guys and really get them into D one shape because right now they're they're a bit of a mess. Um, Cal's a little bit easier, I think. 
Uh, Sonny Dykes, he doesn't have to recruit as hard because the system-based offense, whereas in Colorado it's more of a pro-style offense. You have to do a little bit more in development and finding players to fit the system. But with with, with uh, Cal, you don't have to recruit as, as well to succeed with the offensive system they put in place. Um, and Oregon, I mean, I mean, success speaks for itself. Like the Ducks are still going to be a national title contender, and they really have everything in place to go right back to compete for a BCS title game next year. Mm-hmm. So Helfer did a really good job closing on the trail and getting a lot of players that weren't signed up to, or weren't signed up even before Chip Kelly left. So I think, in terms of ease, I think Oregon had the easiest transition to make from Kelly to Helfer. Okay. Uh, getting uh, back just the whole conference as a whole, um, is there any recruiting class out there, you know, any of the 12 that um, kind of to your mind, you, you look at this uh, class and you go, you know what, this is a, either a really good fit at this school or I think this could be a really under-the-radar 2013 signing class, um, you, you know, just throughout the conference. I mean, regardless of how they were rated, to your mind, when you look at uh, these dozen schools who had that recruiting class that's going to kind of maybe sneak under the radar when these guys are all seniors and everybody's going to look back and go, wow, that was a really good recruiting class and we didn't even realize it. They were going to your school. I think Washington State did a really good job closing this year. They found a lot of guys that really fit the system that they want to put in place. That they got You got the quarterback you wanted. Um, it came down to the last second. But you yeah, got, thank, yeah, thank goodness we got him too. <laughs> Yeah, you got, you got Brogman, and he's going to be a really good good fit for what Mike Leach wants to run. Mm-hmm. You got a couple of good wide receivers, and you let, it go, you let a bunch of quality California talent that was recruited by uh, a lot of Pac-12 schools. You got Riley Sorensen, the offensive tackle. You got a bunch of good young offensive linemen who, if given some time, will be able to develop and fit within the air raid attack and give them the blocking that they've really needed for a while. And you got a couple of wide receivers as well. So you have the offensive system in place to really start making some noise with the attack that Leach likes to run. I think the Cougars did really well. It's going to be an under-the-radar class because a lot of the guys aren't, like, top-notch players. But they really they really seem to find uh, guys that fit what Leach wants to do in Pullman. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a more general question about the conference. I, I know that, you know, like you were just saying, with Mike Leach's system, you're looking for more specific players that kind of fit your need. You're not really concerned about star ratings or how, you know, maybe how many other schools are interested in this guy. But I guess on the whole as a conference, is there anything that Pac-12 can do to, to really get up to kind of that echelon that you see a lot of the SEC schools, uh, some of the Big Ten schools as well, uh, Texas um, as well from the Big 12, even though they don't have 12 teams anymore, but that's another discussion entirely. Um, is there anything the conference can do kind of as a whole to kind of to, to bump itself you know, up, up into that echelon of recruiting uh, aside from winning six consecutive national championships as the SEC has done? I mean, it's tough. I mean, really, the the biggest issue in, in terms of when I look at the recruiting in the SEC compared to the recruiting in the Pac-12 or the Big Ten or anywhere else is you look at the quality of the defensive linemen and the offensive linemen, and really, that's where the SEC is back. They find that they have the best quality line talent um, anywhere in the country, especially in Florida and and uh, anywhere in the deep south. You find a lot of these quality six six five three hundred pound guys. Or six three turns seventy pound defensive ends. They, those guys don't exist in the Pac twelve because it's not as I'm not going to say more athletic, but it's really hard to find that kind of talent um, on a regular basis mm-hmm. um, in terms, you know, finding guys who are ready to go almost immediately. Like 
in the SEC, there's, there's, there's just a bunch of those guys because the football is such an ingrained part of the culture that it, you have so many, you have so much more talent that's going into playing major college football. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't exist. It doesn't, it doesn't exist even in California, even though California does have a lot of great players. Yeah, they're mostly skill position players. Like they're mostly guys that have the wide receiver aspect who are fast and speedy, or running backs who are like very fundamental and fit. Um, and there are some there are some good offensive linemen, but they're mostly technicians. They develop over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in terms of overall talent, I would say the SEC just has a lot more talent. Pac-12 develops so better, like I would say, or they, they have a lot of players in the NFL right now that would show you that, they, that there's plenty of talent on the West Coast, but in terms of the overall aggregate, I would say the SEC has that aggregate talent right now that the Pac-12 okay. still has to build up to. Okay. You had a very, very, very long day on signing day. I'm sure you were up early, went to bed late, plenty to do. Um for you that whole day, and, and you can either look inside the Pac-12 or just all over the country, what for you was kind of the craziest story? It can be, you know, someone taking their son's uh, NLI away from them. It can be anything. Just what, or whether it was someone wavering for eight hours, which school am I going to go to, finally faxed in uh, my NLI. What, what what for you was kind of the craziest story from signing day? We There always are a few of them, but what was yours? Oh, well... Man, I gotta think about that one. There are a lot of there are a lot of weird stories from signing day. I mean, the stuff mom thing was pretty strange. Yes, it um, was. But that that's happened before. I think I, I remember a few years ago. I think some mom faxed in a letter of intent to another school that wasn't supposed to happen. Um, <laughs> but on this signing day, yeah, there was. I think there was. There was a dude who. Uh, I think it was some announcement there. Right, some dude dressed up as. A mascot of some sort, and it was really creepy. That I is don't a little, exactly what it was. That is a. It was kind of a tame signing day in terms of like overall surprises. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I can't think of anything off the top. Um, yeah, but I mean, you, you know, that, sorry, no, go ahead. In terms of like Pac-12 surprises, I think uh, Provo, Toronto Provo switching from USC to Oregon was pretty mm-hmm. was a pretty big deal. I mean, he was supposed to go to Texas A&M, but he ended up in Eugene. I think that was a huge close for the Ducks because they they, they already taken to Anthony Thomas from USC, so mm-hmm. that's two big talents that end up really fighting the Trojans in the near future. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, it was a pretty clean signing day. So there weren't any huge surprises. Most of it came most of it came beforehand. Most of the hijinks came in the weeks before. Yeah. Um, I think I think Washington sent uh, a USC commit seventy three silver letters because his jersey number was seventy three. That was that was pretty funny. Well, the USPS making back that $4 billion deficit or whatever it is right there with just USC's oh, help, I think, on that one. Pac- University of Washington yelling yeah. out. <laughs> PacificTakes.com, the Pac-12 blog that covers the entire, or that covers the Pac-12 for SB Nation. Avanish Kune, thank you so much for joining us, sir. I appreciate it. All right, we're going to wrap up the Kook Center podcast. Don't go anywhere. (laughs) 
Welcome back here on the Coog Center Podcast. It is once again that time, your dunderhead of the week. Freaking idiot. And this one goes uh, a little more local to Pullman. Uh, Creme 2 News in Spokane. A uh, bit of a slip of the tongue from one of their weather anchors when uh, describing the uh, forecast for uh, Valentine's Day. Obviously, a uh, time full of love and wonderment for couples no matter what stage of the relationship you're at or or, or just people in general a good day to feel good about love right well nothing like a little freudian slip on creme 2 news have a listen nice day to maybe head outside with your uh, significant other or whoever you want to hang out with (laughs) and then uh, the weekend so far so good should be dry but in the 40s so slow and slutty Bloody. <laughs> Steady. Steady. Right. We knew what you meant. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Danielle. Coming up here on Creme 2 News at 6.30, a Western Washington community rallying around a little girl. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's probably uh, not what was meant to be said. Now, speaking as a person who, uh, you know, worked at radio before, has worked at news, that kind of stuff does happen occasionally. It has never personally happened to me. I hope it never does happen to me because that is very, very embarrassing. Be right back with Ask Michael Anything, our brand new segment here on the Kook Sound Podcast. Stick around. Podcast, our final segment, and it is the new one. Ask Michael anything, and uh, you, you know, just based on these questions I'm getting right now, you can kind of see for yourself what I mean when I say ask Michael anything, right? Right. Okay. Good. This one comes from Avanish Kunath, our very gracious guest here earlier on the podcast. Bill Murray's girlfriends in his three best movies. He had Annie McDowell in Groundhog Day, Sigourney Weaver in Ghostbusters, and Scarlett Johansson in Lost in Translation. Who is my pick? And I take it from the question here, who is my pick for who I would want to date? It's got to be Scarlett, right? And then probably Sigourney and then Annie McDowell. So we're going in backwards order there. That's at least, you know, probably the order that um, I would go in anyhow. Uh, my own father even sent in a question. Uh, pontificate on the saying, if some is good, more is better. Is that really the case? I would cite as evidence beer. Right? That's, that's more is always better, right? From Christopher Lewis. If price and worth mean the same thing, why are priceless and worthless polar opposites? I think it's got something to do with the W. And also, just the way compound words work in English. The English language is terrible anyway. Finally, one from an anonymous WSU student. The Cougs started having awesome hour from 3 to 4 with insanely cheap beers. Am I ever going to participate? Well, considering I will be there in May for my sister's graduation, I expect to see a lot of people there lined up to buy me a beer to get on the Cougs Center podcast. I think, I think that's how it can work. And I think... You know what? Oh, darn. We might just have to have a segment from the Coog for that podcast. Next week, more great stuff coming up on the Coog Center podcast. As always, we'll check you then.